Welcome to Strange Talk. Hey, strangers. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Crime. Now, This Week in Crime is where I bring you weird, strange news segments, uh, news articles from around the world or from here, right here in good old America. But before I get into This Week in Crime, I usually just kind of chit-chat and just kind of give you an update of what's been going on in the week. But unfortunately, not a whole lot has been going on in my week, and it's really boring. So I thought I'd give you a sneak preview of what I will be, of the subject of what I'll be talking about um, for Monday's episode. And Monday's episode is going to be all about mysterious vanishings. Um, people who have disappeared by either means of kidnap or it's just rem- their case remains a mystery. And I know most of the listeners who um, I have spoken to over the time, they usually like a resolution. They like to know an ending. But I, on the other hand, enjoy, and I mean, it's kind of weird to say that I enjoy vanishings. I mean, I prefer them because... I don't know. I, it's 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 because it's like it's a very interesting case. Um, I, I might be tackling. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. I'm horrible. I know. But maybe you, if I divulge the details, maybe you'll know what I'm referring to. But there was a case of a, a little boy who vanished. Um, I think he was like maybe six or seven or eight between the ages of six and eight, and he vanished and maybe when he was found supposedly i think when he was 16 and the mothers took him in and the mother believed that was her child and she's like oh my god he came back into our lives somehow by some miracle but the rest of her family didn't really believe that was the little boy but the mother was so sure of it and then you know they kind of the family was kind of being divided where the mother believed that was her son and and uh, I won't give it away but I'm pretty sure it's obvious but uh, so you'll want to stay like tune into uh, Monday's episode but one of the cases that I'm obviously not going to discuss on Monday but I was going to use it but because it's a little short I decided to just use it for this little segment of this week in crime before I get into the actual articles so Nine-year-old Antoinette Cayodito, who disappeared from her home in the quiet town of Gallup, New Mexico, on the night of April 6, 1986. On this evening, Antoinette's mother, Penny, had gone out drinking with friends at a local bar, as she often did because she was a little bit of an alcoholic, leaving Antoinette and her younger sister, Wendy, at home with the babysitter. When she returned home, the girls were allegedly still full of energy and stayed up until around 3 a.m after which Antoinette ended up sleeping with her mother. However, when Penny woke up at 7 a.m., the girl was gone. Thinking that her daughter had just gotten up early, she went around looking for her, but the girl was nowhere to be seen, and neighbors claimed that they had not seen her about either. Penny and some neighbors began frantically searching around the neighborhood of Antoinette, I'm sorry, around the neighborhood for Antoinette, but could not find any sign of her. And with their fears escalating, they called the authorities and the police launched a search of the entire area, but could find no trace of the missing girl either, leading them to suspect that she had been kidnapped. 
No further leads were forthcoming, and the case went cold, with no sign of where the girl could have possibly gone. It would not be until a year later when a mysterious phone call would come in to the Gallup Police Department and reignite the investigation for Antoinette. The call was placed directly to the police station itself, and on the other end was the voice of a scared-sounding little girl, claiming to be the missing Antoinette. In the call, she tells the police that she is in Albuquerque, and pleads for help before an unidentified man's voice can be heard saying, Who told you that you could use the phone? This is followed by a short scream and what sounds like a tussle before the line goes dead. It was at first thought that this was merely a prank call, but when the girl's mother, Penny, heard it, she was convinced it was the voice of her daughter, Antoinette. Fortunately, the call had been far too short to trace, and no further calls came in. The call was maddening for police, because it strongly suggested that the girl was still alive and had been kidnapped, but they weren't sure who the man's voice belonged to and had no way of knowing her whereabouts except the vague claim that she was in Albuquerque. Penny would say of the mysterious phone call, I listened to the tape over and over and over, and just by the way she says her last name, and the way she screamed, sent chills all over my body. A mother knows, and I know that was her. But believe me, this case starts to take a weird turn. The case would get weirder still when, in 1990, a waitress in Carson City, Nevada, claimed to have seen Antoinette eating in the diner where she worked. According to the witness, the girl looked rather tired out and disheveled, and was eating with a similarly run-down and unkept-looking man and woman, who acted very suspiciously, constantly looking at looking about with shifty eyes. The waitress also claimed that the girl had deliberately dropped eating utensils onto the floor over and over again, and had left behind a note scrawled on a napkin which read, Please help me and call the police. This startling new development prop- prompted the until now silent younger sister, Antoinette's younger sister, Wendy, to come forth with the potential revelation that on the night of the disappearance, Antoinette had gone to answer a knock at the door in the middle of the night, after which a man's voice had been heard claiming to be Uncle Joe. When the door was opened, two unidentified men, who Wendy had never seen before, then allegedly grabbed Antoinette and dumped her, kicking and screaming, into a waiting brown van before driving off into the dead of night. When asked why she had not divulged this information before, Wendy claimed that she had not wanted to further upset her mother, which is a very stupid claim because it would have probably helped a long time ago. It is not known if Wendy's claims are true, though, and there are there has been doubt as to whether the waitress's account described Antoinette or even really at all. It has all just created more layers to the mystery. This new information was nevertheless checked out with the first target the very real Uncle Joe, but he was quickly ascertained to have had nothing to do with it, and was dropped as a suspect. Other suspects were checked out as well, including Antoinette's estranged father, Larry Estrada, and two known sex offenders living in the area, but none of this turned up any solid leads. Interestingly, 
More and more suspicion was eventually placed on Antoinette's own mother, Penny, as it turned out that she lied to the police about several minor details and showed other suspicious behaviors such as the purchase of a new sports car shortly before Antoinette's disappearance. Despite the fact that the family was not well off and lived in a poor part of town, she was also known for her hard partying ways and drinking problem. Authorities began to suspect that Penny perhaps knew more than she was letting on. But unfortunately, Penny had passed away in April of 1999 before any headway could be made into this potential new lead. The case has remained totally unsolved. No one knows where Antoinette went or whether she was kidnapped, murdered, or just ran away. The mysterious call made to the police department cannot be concretely confirmed to be the voice of the missing girl, and even if it is her, it only manages to add to the whole mystery. It is likewise not known why she would not have just dialed 911 rather than calling directly to the Gallup police station, nor whether Wendy's claims of an abduction are true or why she would not come forward with this crucial information until four years after Antoinette was kidnapped. As to the claims by the waitress in Carson City, there is no evidence at all to show that the girl said the girl she said she saw was actually Antoinette, or even whether she just made the whole thing up. These are all things we will likely never have any answers to, and it all remains an impenetrable mystery, and to this day Antoinette has never been seen or heard from again. So let's get to this week in crime, I'm bringing you these articles. Most of these articles have come from one person and one person alone because they're a true fan, a true listener, and that is at Rocky the Collector. Thank you for making my life easier by finding me these weird articles. Now, the first article is police find seven sharks living in New York man's pool. Authorities in New York have charged a man with the illegal com- uh, commercialization of fish. Sell- sh- that's a hard, I don't know why I'm fucking struggling to talk. <laughs> Commercialization of fish, shellfish, crustaceans, and wildlife after they discovered seven sharks living in his above ground pool. 38-year-old Joshua Seguine of Langreville, New York, was arranged two years after officials found the sharks during a search of his home. Along with the seven sandbar sharks, They also found two dead leopard sharks and one dead hammerhead shark. Police were tipped off to Seguin's illegal activities after they found five undersized sharks in the bed of his truck. He explained that he had planned to sell them and admitted to having more sharks at his home. Authorities launched an investigation and discovered that he was selling the sharks on MonsterFishKeepers.com. I didn't even know that was a website. Sandbar sharks are considered a protected species in New York and owners must have a special license, which can cost around $11,500. Jeez. Officials brought the sharks to the Long Island Aquarium, where they were checked out by veterinarians before being transferred to the New York Aquarium in Coney Island. The trafficking of protected species is both unlawful and harmful to these vulnerable creatures, Attorney General Latita James said in a statement. These individuals is charged with knowingly putting these endangered species in harm's way in an effort to line his own pockets. My office will continue to enforce the laws that safeguard our wildlife and hold accountable those who seek to violate them. Interesting. I don't know why, but thinking of sharks and how this guy was keeping them in his pool, I kind of, like my mind harkens back 
to that scene in the first Ace Ventura Pet Detective episode where like he's feeding the dog and they're kind of like the dog. He's he's feeding the fish and he doesn't really know like like it's a shark and it's they're kind of like paying homage to the scene of Jaws. I'm really like good with my references, aren't I? But yeah, that's what I'm just thinking about that scene. Let's move on to the next article. So, a man boards a flight naked because clothes make him less aerodynamic. Some people prefer to travel lightly, but one man took it a little too far this week. The 38-year-old took off all his clothes before boarding on a Ural Airlines flight at Moscow's Domodedvo Airport. I'm not sure if I said that right. Domodedvo Airport. Video taken by other passengers shows the man pitch. I mean, if you think about it, that guy's just fucking like, I mean, if you think about it, he's kind of smart. He's not wasting, you know, their TSA or whatever they have there. If it's the same thing, he's not really wasting their time. He's just, he's like, look, I ain't got shit on me. There you go. <laughs> so, I mean, if you think about it, he's, he's actually kind of smart. He's just showing like, Hey, this is what I got on me. That's it. Video taken by other passengers shows the man patiently waiting in line to board as if there is nothing attracting attention to him. Once he got towards the front of the line, he ran onto the jetway but was stopped by airport staff and held until the police showed up. According to witnesses, the guy shouted that he was naked because clothing impairs the aerodynamics of the body. He also yelled that he flies with more agility when undressed. What the fuck? The flight continued to board while the man sat handcuffed and naked on the jetway. Passengers walking by him continued to film the bizarre scene. Onlookers say the man didn't show any signs of being drunk. Meanwhile, a press release from Russia's interior ministry explained that the man was taken to the airport's medical room and then hospitalized in a medical facility. But if it's Russia, I just imagine they probably just took him to the back and just fucking finished him, just fucking offed him right there. He's being taken to medical facilities and you just hear like a... So... This one's a more serious one, um, so uh, fair warning. A pair of JetBlue pilots raped two female airline workers during a layover in Puerto Rico and left one of the victims with an STD. A new Brooklyn lawsuit charges. The heinous incident occurred in San Juan on May 9th after the crew members met flight officers Eric Johnson and Don Watson on the beach and shared some beers after finding out the men were pilots for JetBlue, according to federal court papers. The beer was laced with the drug, and after that point, the rest of the night became a blur for the women, says the lawsuit, which was filed on Monday. The women, only identified as Jane Doe 1 from Riverton, Utah, and Jane Doe 2 from Fort Worth, Texas, and a third crew member with no hometown, no hometown, how do you have no hometown, ended up back at the Intercontinental Hotel with the pilots, the suit says. That's where Jane Doe 1 says Johnson raped her and the third crew member. Johnson was on top of Jane Doe 1 raping her, the lawsuit says. Jane Doe 1 felt the influence of the drug that Johnson laced the beer with and was unable to react to the situation, but was simply aware that it was happening. Her flashes of memory included Johnson having sexual intercourse with the other crew member who was also under the influence of the drugs, according to the lawsuit. After the assault, Johnson said, thank you for making my fantasy come true. The paper state, jeez, what a fucking dick. Meanwhile, Jane Doe 2 became sick from the drugs and vomited a number of times, the suit says. Johnson and Watson drugged Jane Doe 2 
and intended to rape her, but did not when she began vomiting, which was a turnoff, the suit says. The next morning, on a flight to Newark, New Jersey, the women felt groggy and numb and expressed to each other that they were stunned by what had happened. The women say they reported the rape to JetBlue, but that no action was ever taken against the pilot. Jane Doe 1 says that Johnson intentionally gave her HPV. What happened to my clients is truly horrific, and JetBlue's failure to take appropriate action is appalling, said the woman's lawyer, Abraham Mellum. The women are suing for at least $75,000 each in damages, plus attorney's fees and costs. The pilots could not be reached. JetBlue did, however, state that it couldn't comment on pending litigation. The airline said it takes allegations of violent or inappropriate behavior very seriously and investigates such claims thoroughly. So let's hear. Let's hopefully that those fucking dudes, those fucking douches, <laughs> get what's coming to them. Moving on to the next article. Mount Everest expedition operators <clears throat> are finding increasing numbers of climbers' dead bodies on the world's highest peak as high temperatures melt glaciers and snow. More than 200 mountaineers have died on the peak since 1922, when the first climbers' deaths on Everest were recorded. The majority of bodies are believed to have remained buried under glaciers or snow. Due to the impact of climate change and global warming, snow and glaciers are fast melting, and dead bodies are increasingly being exposed and discovered by climbers. Ang Shearing Sherpa former president of Nepal Mountaineering Association. Since 2008, my own company has brought down seven dead bodies of some mountaineers, some dating back to, as, to a British expedition in the 1970s. Sobit Kunwar, an official of Nepal National Mountain Guides Association, said it's a very serious issue because it's increasingly common and affects our operations. We are really concerned about this because it's getting worse, he added. We are trying to spread information about it so that there can be a coordinated way to deal with it. The association's treasurer, Tzing Sherpa, said that climate change is affecting Nepal rapidly, saying that in parts, glaciers are melting by a meter every year. Most of the dead bodies we bring to the towns, but those we can't bring down, we respect by saying prayers for them and covering them with a rock or a snow. Or snow. With a snow. <laughs> he lamented that the authorities' lack of action in dealing with the dead bodies encountered on the mountain. We have not seen the government taking any responsibility, he said. Recovering and removing bodies from the higher camps can be both dangerous and expensive. Eng Tashiring Sherpa, one of the first pupils to study at a mountaineering school built by the New Zealand climber Edmund Hillary and a pioneer of Everest tourism, said that one of the most dangerous recoveries was an 8,700 meters near the peak. The body weighed approximately 150 kilograms, 23.6 stone, and it had to be recovered from a difficult place at that altitude. It was a Herculean task, he said. He added that it takes a long time to get funding from the government to remove bodies, but we, the operators, feel it is our duty, and so whenever we find them, we bring the bodies back down. Interesting enough, there's an episode, I don't know if you ever heard of the show called Adam Ruins Everything, but he actually tackled, um, I guess it was an episode about this guy who's like a nature freak and he, he's, he wants to like explore things and stuff. And the episode begins with him supposedly trekking Mount Everest. And 
of course, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, but Adam Conway, which is the host of Adam Ruins Everything, he basically goes on to say that because so many people, he's like, why, why do you want, he asks the guy, why do you want to do Mount Everest? And he goes, because it's so challenging. He's like, not really, if you think about it. I mean, plenty of people, yes, people have died doing this, but because of, but there are also so many other people who have actually conquered Mount Everest. So you're not really being that special. You're just doing what other people have already technically done. And not only did he go into detail about that, but he also talked about one problem that is actually very kept secret about Mount Everest is the amount of shit on Mount Everest. Because you're trekking up Mount Everest. You have to camp there. People leave their shit and trash all over Mount Everest. And so nobody's going to go up there to fucking clean it because it's fucking freezing. So the government doesn't really know what to do. And I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head of what he said about Mount Everest, but he goes, there's so much poop on Mount Everest that it's now more poop than it is snow, supposedly is what he said. So <laughs> there's an idea for you because they make it sound so luxurious, right? Because the reason why they don't want to stop doing tourism, but there's a lot of people in Nepal. There's like a small organization, a group that wants to stop the tourism of going to Mount Everest, but because... It's such a big moneymaker for Nepal that they don't put an end to it because, I mean, that's like their biggest thing is to make money from that. A lot of that goes into their economy, but a lot of people want it to stop because they're fucking up the the ecosystem within Mount Everest. Um, not only that, but uh, of course, all the bodies of people who are there that died, they can't really get them back down like you heard in there. So it's a literal grave site now. So moving on to the next article, a Brooklyn man fights city over a shocking 500k water bill. It's the $500,000 drip, and it has a Brooklyn homer, homeowner desperately fighting city hall. East Flatbush resident Joseph Sparrow was assessed a draw-dropping $552,483 in total water charges and penalties by the New York City Department of Environmental Protection over a four-year period, according to documents. This bill amount is totally impossible, someone said. Someone said I would have to have been running a fire hydrant around the clock to run up anything close to what the city has billed me, Sparrow 28 told, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, had said. We have tried to reason and talk with the water department, he added, but they are nasty and difficult about this, saying I owe the money. Four years ago, Sparrow's water supply was shut off, helping curb his astronomical, astronomical bills from escalating further. Yet it hasn't stopped his nightmare. And despite the homeowner's protests to the water department and independent analysis by professional plumbers claiming he could only possibly have ever used about $40 worth of water monthly for his typical size home. The city claims he owns them a lottery-sized check. The owner even paid a crew $30,000 to rip up his property to check out the plumbing for possible leaks. None was detective, however, detected, however, and there is no evidence of a broken water meter, despite city correspondents saying otherwise, according to Sparrow. However, City Department of Environmental Protection officials told <clears throat> last week the property had a substantial water leak which despite several notices over the years, the owner has refused to repair and the water bill has not been paid since 2013. 
Sparrow paid for the house in cash about nine years ago from the proceeds of a legal settlement following his mother's untimely death only two months after Sparrow was born. And while the settlement seemingly left Sparrow comfortable, it was also the start of his own house of horrors. Brian Walton, CEO of Merit Holdings Group in New York, who has forensically examined Sparrow's water bills, is stunned. Walton notes that according to the records, there were 156,100 cubic feet of water consumed by Sparrow's residents for which the city is seeking payment. I have a hard time believing there is a break in the piping as the neighborhood would likely be flooded as a symptom, Walton said. The neighborhood has not reported flooding during the billing period. To put this volume of water in context, added Walton, an Olympic pool contains approximately 88,000 cubic feet of water. Mr. Sparrow is being billed for and supposedly was consuming just shy of two times the amount on a monthly basis. Walton assessed that basic logic would indicate that the house's problem is not Sparrow's but related to a faulty meter or there is a breakage in the water main that feeds Mr. Sparrow's residence. Sparrow's attempts to put his three-bedroom house up for sale and to pay off his tab have fallen flat. Built in 1949, the house is believed to have a market value in excess of $320,000 since the property has no running water. Sparrow has to shower and cook at a house four miles away. He is unable to open it up for renters and some extra income. Sparrow does not work and is filing for disability due to the onset of epileptic seizures, he says. The property, meanwhile, has been slapped with lines and Sparrow is facing eviction in foreclosure because of the unpaid taxes. The foreclosure of this property tax is valid, according to John Zandi, an accountant for Sparrow, who is also defending the, his innocence at City Hall. However, the judge originally did not allow for Joseph Sparrow to sell his property in a private sale because counsel lawyers for the Lennon companies objected, stating that Joseph Sparrow has hundreds of thousands of dollars of water lines. Zandi added, the lawyer appointed for Joseph Sparrow argued that the thousands of dollars in water linen was under dispute. The drama is wearing Sparrow down. I bought this house at 19 and I have always tried to do the right thing in my life, he said. This is the only thing I have and they are trying to take it from me. I could end up homeless, living in a shelter or nowhere to go if this is not resolved fairly. So that is fucking crazy though could you imagine paying you have to pay 500 and something that's ridiculous and it sucks too because i i feel like fucking like companies like that man they're not gonna admit that they're wrong because they don't want to look fucking stupid but it would probably save grace for them if they just did so here's the last episode of this week in crime so i hope you guys got a kick out of the little articles that i brought you so here it goes a man in santa rosa california forced to reduce the size of his fence, got some payback on City Hall with the help of some naked mannequins. Jason Windows has built a six-foot-tall fence to keep his two dogs in his yard. I put this fence together for my dogs so they had so they had a place to run, Windus said. However, Windus was ordered to cut his $9,000 fence in half after a neighbor filed a complaint with the city, claiming it obstructed the view of oncoming traffic for drivers at the intersection. The city agreed and ordered Windows the alteration to the fence in half, which Windows said he didn't consider fair. As you drive through the neighborhood, you'll see that nobody else's fence had to be cut down but mine. Windows said city officials said he would be fined $500 for every day the fence remained in its original condition. 
They made me freak out when this told the news article. So he complied, but not without making his own kind of offbeat statement. Windis put a bunch of naked mannequins he was saving for the right occasion right there in his in his front yard. I couldn't bring myself to throw them away. I was going to use them for target practice. Windis placed four of the anatomically accurate mannequins around a table while a female dummy stands with her arms overhead, according to the Santa Rosa Press de de Democrat. The dummy display features a sign that reads "Reserve seat for the noisy neighbor for the nosy neighbor that complained about my fence to the city. So far, locals are enjoying the nakedly personal protest. I wasn't expecting any of this, he said. We've had like 50 people stop taking pictures telling me how great it is. So there's... See that, but that's, that's kind of like a good thing though. Like, he complied with everything and technically he's not doing anything illegal. It's not actual people, it's simply just mannequin. So that's a good way for you to like kill, like just like a smart ass fucking way to just enact revenge on a fucking piece of shit neighbor who's decided to complain on defense. So that's gonna do it for this episode of This Week in Crime. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And stay tuned for Monday's episode where it's gonna be all about mysterious vanishings, people who just disappeared without a trace and have never been solved. As always, uh, go ahead and follow me on Strange Talk Podcast on Instagram. If you wanna send me news articles, you can do so through Instagram, or if you're old school and you want to send it through an email, go ahead and send it to me at strangetalkpodcast.outlook.com. I'll be sure and be happy to feature it there. But, you know, get ready for Monday's episode. And as always, thank you for taking the time to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. As always, stay fucking strange.